So this morning we are continuing. A couple of weeks ago I started a, a, little, a little thing on the, on the Lord's Prayer. So we're continuing that uh, this morning. We're looking at uh, Matthew 6, 5 through 15. And we're also going to read a, a little story from Isaiah. Isaiah 6, 1 through 8, because I'll be referencing it. And I just want you to, to be aware of it. Um, so before we read... Uh, by the way, you'll find the words up here, or if you've got it with you, you can follow along uh, that way. Before we read, let's pray together. Once again, Father in heaven, we, we say thank you for giving us this space for allowing us to gather together uh, in person and online where we can acknowledge that we belong to you and that you are our Father and that you love us so deeply. And in these next few moments as we open, open your word, we ask that, that you would speak to us that we would hear your voice and that you would do whatever it is you need to do inside of us to, to make us new, to transform our lives, to make us more like Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So starting Matthew 6, verse 5, Jesus says this, When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. I tell you the truth, they've received their reward in full. But, but when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive people their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Right over to Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So he's in a place not unlike this. It's a place of worship. It's a worship time. And he has this vision, right? He sees the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. 
Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. Then I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. We will go that far. So as we begin, as we get into this, uh, I want us to look at some pictures of some signs. Now, as you see these signs, you're all going to recognize what these signs are intended to do. Uh, they all, the, all of these signs sort of, they fit within a particular genre of signage. And before I talk about it too much, we're just going to start looking at the signs. So, can we see the first one? Okay. Clearly, we're looking at a danger sign here, right? Keep out, it says. Right? Because if you don't, then something bad might happen to you, right? Like maybe there's a dog behind a fence or something. Or maybe, maybe an old dude with a shotgun that's going to say, get off my lawn. You know, danger. Keep out, right? Okay, let's see the next one. Okay, danger, high voltage, right? Be careful. Don't touch stuff around here because you might just get the shock of your life. Are you with me? Like, we're there. It's a typical danger sign. Let's see the next one. Okay, these signs are so recognizable to us that we don't even need to have them in our own language. And we recognize what it means. Like, you better not be smoking around here because you might set yourself or something else on fire or something's going to blow up. Danger. No smoking. Are you with me? Okay, next one. Danger. Biohazard. Like, if you touch something around here, you might get sick. Really sick. Okay, see the next one. Right? Okay, now, now they get like creative. Now we're going to have like pictures that show us what will happen to us if we, if we mess around, right? Danger, thin ice. Don't step on this ice because you might fall through and become a human popsicle. Be careful. All right, what's the next one? Okay, so, um, apparently there are places in this world where there are uh, large unmarked holes all over the place. And you have to be careful not to run because you might fall down one of them. Or, uh, apparently, you have to be careful because you might, you might back into one while you're taking a picture with your camera of all the other beautiful unmarked holes. So, um, be careful. Okay, what's the next one? Uh, yeah, so... Railroad tracks, be careful when you ride your bike across them uh, because you might fall. At least a little dude has a helmet on. That's a good deal. Okay. And I think, I think we've got one more. We'll save the best one for last. So don't, <laughs> don't ride. Look at how fast he's going. They even put the lines on there like he's flying. Uh, don't ride your wheelchair down a steep decline because you might get eaten by a crocodile. Uh, danger signs. Thank you, <laughs> Jason. So good. Danger signs. We know what they look like. Right? We all recognize them when we see them. When we see a danger sign, 
we sort of feel the same things. Maybe our the the maybe we get sweaty palms, or maybe our heart races a little bit, or maybe we just have a a general heightened awareness of our surroundings and what's going on in the world. They communicate to us that if we do certain things, we're actually taking some risks. We might be taking our own lives in our own hands, right? Danger signs. They tell us that our lives are weak, brittle, that our lives are breakable, they're fragile, right? Danger, beware, look out. These signs sort of remind us that there are realities in this world that are bigger than us, greater than us, more powerful than us, little human beings, right? Now, we're really good at recognizing danger signs when we see them. And we're really good at respecting danger signs when we see them. But somehow, I think we miss the danger signs that Jesus gives us when he gives us this prayer and our approach to the creator of the universe. Now, most of my thinking, you should know, around this idea comes from a guy named Eugene Peterson who says, Jesus insists that prayer is loaded with danger, right? And so before he gives us this prayer, this model prayer to pray, teaching us how to pray, he gives us three warning signs, three danger signs. You can find them in verses five through eight before he gives us the prayer. They go like this. Don't pray to show off before an audience to be seen by people. So prayer isn't theater, Right? The next one, he says, don't pray to lobby God with many words. So prayer isn't rhetoric. He says, don't pray to impress anybody else. Don't especially not to impress God. So three warning signs, three danger signs. Look out, beware, watch out, know what you're getting into before you get into it. Now, why would he do such a thing? Now, why would Jesus give us these warnings, these danger signs? Do not. Now, why would he insist that prayer is loaded with danger? Hallowed be your name. That's why. Hallowed be your name. Or another way you can translate that is let it be made holy, your name. Here's the deal. Jesus isn't just making this prayer up and giving it to people. No, no, he's not just making it up. Almost all the elements in the Lord's Prayer come from the ancient Jewish prayers called the Amidah. Now, the Amidah is a collection of 18 Jewish prayers that uh, are used for worship in the synagogue back in Jesus' day, and still to this day. Amidah means standing. When you pray these prayers, you stand up out of respect for the Creator of heaven and earth and everything in between. This is no now I lay me down to sleep type of prayer. This is no God is great, God is good, let us thank Him for our food kind of a prayer. This is hallowed be your name. In fact, they have so much respect for the name of God. It's so deep, and they recognize that it can so easily be taken in vain that they won't even say the name of God. They'll just say, they'll just say Adonai, which means 
my Lord. Or get this, they have such respect for the name of God, they won't say it, and instead they'll just say this, Hashem, which means the name. Hallowed be your name. So this hallowed be your name type of part of this prayer is evidence that Jesus is sort of reaching back to his Jewish roots, his Jewish heritage. He's leaning on all the stuff that his mommy and daddy would have taught him at home and the rabbis would have taught him in the synagogue. Like it's Jesus reaching back and collecting all of the stories about the divine interacting with humanity and sort of placing them in front of people and summing them all up in one little phrase. Hallowed be your name. Stories like like the divine creating heaven and earth and everything in between, creating order out of chaos with just the sound of God's voice. Stories like Moses confronting that burning bush and God saying, take off your sandals for where you are standing. That's a holy ground. Stories like God liberating the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt, leading them out by pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. Stories like Isaiah's encounter with the divine while he's in a place like this worshiping. He sees just the hem of God's robe fills the whole temple and the whole place shakes and it's filled with smoke and these weird looking seraphs are flying and they're singing and calling back to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Heaven and earth are filled with His glory. It's like he's reaching into this this thing that Job says in, in his book where he says this. You can find this in chapter 37. As my heart pounds and my and leaps from its place. Listen, he says. Listen to the roar of his voice, to the rumbling that comes from his mouth. He unleashes his lightning beneath the whole heaven and sends it to the ends of the earth. And then this is God speaking through the mouth of Job. This is one of my favorites. This is one of my favorite this depictions of God because this is sarcastic God. This is what he says. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Where were you? Like, tell me if you understand that. Like, who marked off creation's dimensions? Who did that? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? Like, who created boundaries for the chaotic waters of the ocean? Who did that? Have you ever given orders to the morning? Have you ever shown dawn its place? Hallowed be your name. See, these words bring out for us a a sort of an attitude of what we might think of as awe or, or wonder. When we pray these words, we're asking God to demonstrate God's holiness. To demonstrate God's awesomeness. We are asking God with those words, hallowed be your name, to demonstrate God's complete other otherness, to show us just how infinite 
and all-knowing and all-powerful God really is. Hallowed be your name. Now, we've experienced this before, right? We've had glimpses of the holy before. And, and I think if we were paying attention, if we had eyes to see and ears to hear, as Jesus would have put it, then I think we would experience the holy a whole lot more often than we actually do. Right? We've had moments where we realize, oh my goodness, there is more going on here than I previously knew. Right? It's those moments where we realize we're standing on holy ground. Like those moments when the hair on your neck stands up. Right? It's those, maybe you've experienced it in worship before, where you realize some truth you haven't realized before. You recognize something about yourself and you're like, oh my goodness. Maybe you've experienced it at a wedding. Maybe you've experienced it at a gravesite. Maybe you've experienced the holy when you witness the birth of your own child or when you give birth to your own child. Maybe you've experienced it when you're, when you're like up in the mountains on a cloudless night and you're looking up at how vast the universe really is and you realize how small you really are and how big and expansive God must really be. Right? It's those moments when you realize that you're in on something much, much bigger than yourself. And once you find yourself on something much, much bigger than yourself, that we're in on what God is actually doing in the world, what God has always been up to in the world, we realize that we might just lose ourselves. Danger. Beware. Look out. Watch out. Hallowed be your name. So I had this experience a um, long time ago. It was when Samuel was just four and Caleb was two and Micah didn't exist. Um, so it was, it was a while back, our family found ourselves at, on vacation at the Michigan City Zoo. Um, and zoos are great, right? So we're walking around looking at all the animals and that was pretty fun. The sleepy tiger, I remember it being sort of a misty, weird day so we couldn't be at the beach and anyway, so the animals weren't all, they weren't, they weren't doing what they normally do when you go to a zoo. They were just kind of blah because the weather was blah. So the sleepy tigers, they were interesting. The ostriches looked kind of nice, but they didn't look very fast. Like everyone says, they're super fast. You couldn't tell. Uh, the llamas kind of looked weird. The monkeys were hilarious because the monkeys are always hilarious. They're like always the best part of the zoo. The snakes were gross. And then we got to the grizzly bear. Oh my goodness, the grizzly bear. What an amazing animal. So the enclosure for the grizzly bear consisted of this wall that was like glass and big and tall and it was like, a, like an inch thick and placed around in front of the, the, the glass wall were these big boulders. And I don't know who did it. I think it might have been, it might have been Samuel's uncle Rob. Picked him up and put him on top of one of those big boulders so that he could get a better look. And so when he gets up there, he gets all excited. He puts his hands on the glass. He puts his nose up to the window. It looks like he wants to jump in, right, and play around in there. He's all excited. And then all of a sudden, the bear notices 
And it slowly lumbers over to the place where Samuel is and looks up. A grizzly bear. And then he stands up on his hind legs, puts its great big paws up there right next to Samuel and presses his nose in close. Big, awesome, dangerous. You might even say, holy. And then all of a sudden, my heart starts pounding. My palms get sweaty because there's my four-year-old child nose to nose with a grizzly bear separated by an inch of glass. And I think to myself, I have to get him down from there now. Hallowed be your name. Friends, we cannot domesticate the holy. We cannot trivialize the creator of the universe. Listen to what Eugene Peterson says. Moses didn't take a photograph of the burning bush and show it to his wife Zipporah and his children. Isaiah's singing angels were not accompanied by a handle oratorio that he captured on a CD for later listening at his, at, at his leisure. John, who wrote Revelation, didn't reduce his vision of Jesus into charts and use them to entertain religious consumers with sensationalized views on the future. We cannot domesticate the holy. Our God is a consuming fire, says the writer of Hebrews. Not fire to be played with. Holy, holy, holy is not Christian needlepoint. Hallowed be your name. These words bring out in us an attitude of awe. An attitude of wonder. And friends, when we pray those words, hallowed be your name, we are asking God to demonstrate God's holiness. We're asking God to demonstrate God's complete otherness. And when we find ourselves in the presence of the Holy One, we become acutely aware of how small, weak, brittle, breakable, fragile our own little lives really are. When we truly experience ourselves to be in the presence of the Holy One, part of us wants to stay in that place and soak up the awesome and soak up the majesty and soak up the holy. And then there's this other part of us that wants to run away and hide as quickly as we can. We want to run away and hide as quickly as we can because we become acutely aware that we've tried for far too long to, to rule our own little worlds and run our own little lives. And we begin to understand that, that when we try to run our own little worlds and run our own little lives, that we often make a big mess of things. We become acutely aware of our shortcomings, like our imperfections sort of creep up on us like little spiders. And we're like, oh, we say with, we say with Isaiah when we experience the holy, woe to me for I am a person of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. 
We've messed things up royally. And now I have seen the King, the Lord Almighty, hallowed be your name. Those words bring out in us an attitude of awe, an attitude of wonder. And we become aware of how small we are and how badly we've messed things up and how far we've strayed. Danger. Beware. Look out. So on the one hand, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about this. Jesus teaches us that God is personal and wants to be in a relationship with us and loves us so much that God is Abba, that God is Father, that God gets a big old grin on God's face whenever we pray and God cannot take His eyes off of us. And then on the other hand, God is beyond all that. That God is infinite and huge and holy and other. And, and when we recognize that, we recognize our own imperfections. That God is holy, demanding holiness from us. And we're like, oh, we can't do that. So one teaching draws us so close to God and the other one wants to, makes us want to run away and hide. So what do we do with that? Well, we put them together. God is holy. And God is love. God is holy love. And when we put those two things together, the implications on our lives, it's astounding. It's transformational. It's life-changing. Literally. And we'll talk about that in a few weeks. I don't really have an ending to this sermon. Just a teaser to come back. We'll keep talking about this stuff. Because like I said when we began, if we take these words seriously, if we take this prayer seriously, and we pray it often enough, I think it transforms lives. Let's pray.